On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Portia, and Portia was raised by an abusive father. It's a story of the lost child, enmeshment, enabling, and covert incest. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, we have Portia. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you, Brandon? I am doing well, and if you want to be a guest like Portia is today, please do go visit our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. There you can read all of our instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our Guest Form and press the Submit button. And please do read all of the instructions and send it in the format that we ask for. And today we are going to hear... Portia's story. It is a few different subjects that we haven't touched upon in in a big way before. And one of them is the subject of being a lost child. And a lost child is a child that attempts to stay out of the dysfunctional picture of a family as much as possible by staying quiet. They learn how to be on their own and they fend for themselves as much as possible. And they are kids that have their needs not being met. And this child will withdraw, they'll feel alone, and they will yearn uh, for love, approval, and attention. And specifically when it comes to a lost child and a narcissistic parent, uh, the lost child doesn't seem to matter to the narcissistic abuser, and the child avoids conflict by just keeping this low profile. And the narcissistic abuser doesn't really perceive the lost child as a threat or a quote-unquote good source of uh, supply. So the lost child is usually a victim of neglect and emotional abuse. So we will also be touching on the subject of enmeshment in this episode, as well as covert incest too. And if you want to learn more about those topics, we do have a Q&A with Dr. Kenneth Adams, and you can find a link for that episode in our show notes. A big trigger warning in this episode for the discussion in detail of sexualization and covert incest discussion of a child, as well as a brief but graphic discussion of physical abuse as well. So a big, big, big thank you to Portia for being here with us today because we really haven't gone into depth on these subjects before. And now I'm just going to get out of my way and your way. Portia, the floor is now yours. Thank you. Very excited to be here. Uh, Very excited to share a story that I know you guys don't typically talk about. I didn't know what a lost child was until about eight months ago. (laughs) And then when I figured out what it was, I was like, oh, that's me. Uh, My parents met very young, high school, young, late teens, senior year, I want to say. They both, I think they were introduced by a mutual friend. Uh, My mom's mom was absolutely a raging narcissist herself. A hundred thousand percent. Like, there's no way around that. Very abusive. 
uh, I mean, there are stories of horrific things that my grandmother did to uh, my mom and her siblings, horrible things. Um, a lot of really, really bad, bad abuse. Um, so in a way I kind of get her perspective cause she literally knew nothing else. Cause she met my dad at 18 years old, 17 years old. Um, my dad was raised. Well, interestingly enough about my father, his parents were quite a bit older when they had him. Uh, he has one older sibling who's quite a bit older than him as well. Um, they, they were old, especially for the time frame. My, my parents are both boomers. Um, for the time frame in which he was born, his parents were much older, like in their 50s when he was, uh, I think my grandmother was in her 40s, but my grandfather was in his 50s. Um, and he was uh, um, not planned and very enmeshed with my grandmother, um, obviously his mom. And there was a lot of bullying for him. So, you know, he would be get made fun of for his weight all the time. He would get made fun of for any myriad of things. I think his parents being older was a very big point of contention for him as well. And I guess when they met, it was, well, here's somebody that's been abused their whole life versus here's somebody who's been enmeshed and told he's this perfect little angel and also made fun of his whole life. And it just worked out really well for them. Um, my mom will tell you that my dad's been an alcoholic as long as she's known him. And that's going on almost 50 years now. So my dad has been a drinker his whole adult life and they're boomers. So he started drinking at 18 because that was the legal age back then, probably before that, let's be honest. Um, but his alcoholism, I know, has always been a point of contention. And my mom has threatened divorce many times due to the alcoholism, although I think that's just nonsense. But they definitely were a match made in hell between her abuse and him being raised the way that he was raised. Um, she almost didn't have a chance. She definitely was put in a very rough spot. And my dad, I think his mom just kind of amped him up so much that he was just, he was the best to her. And then that between that and getting mercilessly mocked for his weight and his parents, he, he didn't have a chance either. Um, and yeah, then they, they got married pretty young. They had their kids pretty young. He was working and getting his degrees in college, uh, while we were very young and, um, drinking that whole time. It's, it's almost amazing. It's kind of impressive in a really worked way, actually, <laughs> that you was able to do all that. Uh, so I am the youngest of three. I have two older siblings. One is almost six years older, and the other is like three and a half years older than I am, three, three and a half years. I My oldest sibling was definitely the scapegoat, which seems to be fairly common in these dynamics. Uh, the middle child was definitely more of a golden child, although our roles definitely oscillated, which also seems to be a fairly common theme within these family dynamics I've learned. As we all know, it's whatever we bring to the narcissist that, you know, whatever we can bring to the narcissist that brings them joy or brings them accolades or whatever that may be. Um, in my dynamic, my father is the narcissist. Um, while I know for the contents and purposes of your show, because I've listened many times, so it was very fun hearing you do that introduction. Um, he, while he's not formally diagnosed by a, you know, a medical professional, my own therapist said, as my quote, and I hope it's okay if I use swear words, is that it walks like a duck, talks like a duck, and quacks like a duck, it's a fucking duck. Um, so in that case, um, I would also argue or say he's more also a cerebral narcissist. Um, so for our whole lives, starting from very, very young, we were all expected to do incredibly well in school. 
I'm talking, you get a below a 90 on a test, you were getting grounded, if not worse. Um, which thankfully all three of us kids were really good in school and we all did really well and we did extracurriculars and all that stuff, but it just never, that moving goalpost never seemed to be enough. Um, my oldest sibling, I remember being four and her asked, begging our mom to divorce our dad. Um, spoiler alert, never happened. They're still married. Um, my brother was the middle child. My brother, he was always, um, he always did pretty well. He was he excelled in sports, and our dad did not excel in sports. So I think that brought him a lot of like, praise and accolades, um, kind of reliving his childhood and what he hoped would happen for him that didn't. My dad was also um, an overweight child, and so food was a very big trigger point for him with us children. Uh, so, you know, you even looked at ice cream the wrong way and you were getting backhanded. Forget about having soda in the house. That did not happen. Ice cream, cookies, chips in the U.S. here. So I'm talking potato chips, not french fries. Um, although those were not allowed either. Forget about getting McDonald's. Oh, my gosh. No way. Um, so that was a very big part of our childhood. Um, I have a vivid memory of a story. I was like 12 years old and 100 degrees outside. I grew up in the northeast of the U.S. I remember my dad was home and I went to put my head in the freezer as a lot of us did and we didn't have air conditioning in the 90s and early 2000s. And I remember my dad smacking me across the face because I took a teaspoon of ice cream and said, I don't remember the exact words, but something along the lines of you're fat anyway and you don't need this. And for the record, I was not, not that it matters, but I was not an overweight child. Um, I was very normal, healthy you know, I was also active and all those things. That was a very big thing for him. School was a very big thing for him. Thing that makes our, I say our, my siblings and I, um, our story very different from most people in these dynamics is he was not home a lot. Um, he was either studying to get his PhD or he was working um, because he had to get all the accolades he could and all the narcissistic supply he could get. He would come home sometimes at like six, seven o'clock. Um, and I know, Brandon, this is something I shared with you um, when I submitted um, this. And I know we'll probably touch on this again later, but my dad is also still to this day a raging alcoholic. Um, so he'd come home at like six o'clock, drink himself silly. And by 645, he was passed out drunk on the floor, um, which worked really well for us kids because he wasn't really around very much. So we did have our mom who definitely enabled him and would argue is possibly a dependent narcissist herself. Although her penchant for self-reflection sometimes makes me think maybe not. That's not the point. So yeah, that was pretty tough. And I remember from a very young age, just making myself as small as possible, trying to just not be involved. Um, I spent more time than not at my friend's houses. I had a best friend growing up. I was at her house more than I was at my own house. I slept there probably four or five nights a week for years. My parents didn't care. It didn't matter. Um, and I think that's a big thing a lot of lost children might be able to empathize with or at least sympathize with is like my parents didn't give a hoot where I was or what I was doing. They weren't really checking on me. They weren't really looking to see where I was. I mean, there's more than one occasion of them leaving me somewhere and then forgetting about me and then having to go back and get me. Definitely a dynamic in which I was not, not remembered. <laughs> and as the youngest, they think they were so focused on the oldest who was the scapegoat and she was definitely louder and saw things 
And then the middle child was so busy with all his sports that I was just forgotten left at the friend's house or I did so many extracurriculars that I just kept myself out of everything. What did your friend's uh, parents think of you staying there all the time? That's a great question. I was very fortunate that my best friend's mom at the time loved me like her own daughter. And because we were so close in age, she didn't care. Um, I do know, um, actually, it's funny. I was, I'm still really good friends with one of my friends from high school. And I think she only slept over my house once because we weren't allowed to have sleepovers. She, I was talking to her recently because she knows my whole story. And I asked her what her thoughts were coming to my house. And she said it was really awkward and uncomfortable. And your dad made me very uncomfortable. And I didn't know how to read him, um, which is probably why we weren't allowed to have people over. Um, so I think I was fortunate in that sense with my friends. But once that one friend and I, the one when I was younger, when we kind of fell out of touch, I was unfortunately stuck at home. I remember trying to run away. I remember just digging myself into my studies and digging myself into everything and Oh man, I, I read and I read and I read and I hid in my room and I read some more. I played an instrument. I practiced. Um, I joined like three different uh, bands with that instrument just so I could get out of the house. Um, again, often locked there. <laughs> and they'd have to like, I'd have to find a payphone before cell phones. And I had to call them and let them know that, you know, hey guys, I'm here. Pick me up. Sounds pretty sad now that I say it out loud. Although I guess if you don't laugh, you cry. So um, it's actually it's interesting that we're talking today. I was um, preparing for this this morning with my husband, and I was telling him a story, and the look of abject horror on his face was kind of funny when I told him because I never took this story in anything other than a, a silly light. My dad would always say that. At, sorry, I I was four. It's the first memory I have of this conversation. My father would say, you're the compromised child. Your mother wanted four children and I wanted two. So I guess we got stuck with you. And now as an adult and I say that and having a kid of my own, I'm like, wow, that's just horrific. Um, but at the time I was like, oh, I, you know, daddy loves that I'm here. That's so great. When I now realize like he didn't give a hoot. And to actually piggyback off of that, my mom recently admitted to me that my dad didn't want any children. And that she basically had to strong arm him into having children or she was going to break up with him. So I guess he agreed. Yeah, so childhood was a lot of being forgotten by my parents um, and then pitting the siblings against each other. Um, so, you know, one sibling would be told one thing and then they would gang up on the other ones, a lot of that triangulation stuff. Um, I remember being a teenager and wearing a skirt and my dad would say something like, oh, you're a whore for wearing that, even though it wasn't your clothes don't dictate any of that. Um, and my brother would then mimic him, even though he didn't actually really believe that. Um, you know, I'm dramatic. So everybody still says I'm dramatic. Um, there is so many stories about things that my dad did that are would be considered absolute child abuse. No doubt about it. And to this day, my siblings who have children of their own will say, well, you were just being overly sensitive or dramatic because they're just echoing what my dad said. Um, and then there was also um, a lot of enmeshment with her mom. Uh, so, and when I say that, I really mean just the emotional aspect of it. Uh, so my mom would confide in us things like, you know, I wish your dad was nicer to me. I wish your dad wasn't so abusive. Uh, he was 
emotionally abusive to all of us and physically abusive to all of us, although my mom definitely got the brunt of the physical abuse. So she would often say things to us about that. Uh, she would say things like, you know, I, don't ever marry somebody like your dad. Don't ever be like that. You know, I wish I could, like, would say to my brother, I wish I had a husband more like you and say to us girls, like, don't be like me. Don't make the same mistake. Like, you know, I love you girls so much. I can't imagine you guys going through this. I had a boyfriend many years later and she, when we broke up, she said, I'm so glad you guys broke up and that you're not going to turn into me and you're not going to live my life. Uh, so that definitely also took a toll because we all felt, and I've talked to my siblings about this as adults, and we all felt that we were responsible for our mom's happiness and for her safety. Even as young children, we didn't have anybody supporting us or keeping us safe because we were so preoccupied with keeping our mother safe. Um, even as the lost child, even as the one who was ignored all the time, I was still very concerned about her safety and her happiness despite all of that. So even though your sister might not fully have a grasp of what happened still today, at the time when you were younger, she did have a little idea that things weren't right. So tell us about that. She definitely, even to this day, well, she wouldn't use the term narcissist to um, talk about her dad. Um, I definitely know that she saw something that my brother and I maybe didn't see at the time. I mean, when an eight-year-old is begging their parent to divorce their other parent, they see something there. They wouldn't just ask for that. And she, while she was the scapegoat, she was so academically gifted and was, um, I don't know if there's a term for third in the class, but she was third in her class in high school in, in a quite a large class. Um, so that was like a huge deal for the cerebral narcissist um, dad that we had. Um, so that was kind of how she brought the glory. My brother brought the glory with the sport. I'm not an unintelligent person. I'm not sports inclined at all. Um, I definitely did my thing with the, my instrument. I think that definitely brought them the glory with that, but it was definitely a type of thing where our dad was living vicariously through us and specifically my brother. Um, and I know that's pretty common, but I know with me in particular, I was fed the Kool-Aid of, well, your dad's an alcoholic and it's a disease and you can't help that and you should be kind to him and you shouldn't call him out or be disrespectful or anything like that. Um, so I would always make excuses for him despite being the last child. Um, and eventually what wound up happening as I got older um, was that I started to become a little bit more of a golden child just because I defended my dad to my siblings and even my mom at times. So for him, I was that at times. But as soon as I didn't defend him, I was back being lost child, forgotten, nobody cared. Um, I remember moving to college. He didn't care about going. Neither did my mom, really. Um, like to live in the dorms. I remember I had like academic things that I did in college really well and um, I was on the school paper and I did this major thing. They couldn't have cared less, didn't even make note of it, didn't matter to them. Um, you know, pretty sad. And I know other lost children that I've spoken to or invisible children um, would agree that you get this strong sense of just feeling like nobody gives any sort of crap about you at all. And then you grow up and you realize, well, there are some people that do, but it's a pretty detrimental thing when your parents in particular don't seem to show that kind of love and affection. So something that you wanted to discuss today was the topic of covert 
incest and a big trigger warning for everyone right here. So for the next seven and a half minutes, this is what we will be discussing. And if this isn't for you, just skip ahead seven and a half minutes. So uh, Portia, walk us through this part of your story. This is one of those topics that I didn't know it existed or was a thing or anything um, until I started joining some uh, narcissistic recovery groups and things like that, or like from abuse. And once I saw somebody put a name to it, my light bulb went off and I said, holy crow, that, that's it. Um, I've heard a lot of people call enmeshment covert incest, and I think they're kind of two sides of the same coin. So from our, from our perspective, the difference between enmeshment and covert incest is enmeshment would be kind of like what our mom was doing, as I explained before. So things like treating us as a spouse emotionally, um, you know, leaning on us for emotional support, uh, maybe psychological, mental support, things of that nature, saying things like, she did to my brother, I wish my husband were like you, uh, kind of like that. Um, whereas covert incest, I would say, is more... It's kind of hard to explain, but it's like there's kind of a physical aspect to it, but it's not overt sexual abuse. Uh, so I can give some examples. Things like we had two bathrooms in our house. Uh, both worked perfectly fine. Uh, there were no issues with either. They were both full bathrooms. And it just so happened every time you had to take a shower, my dad was barging in that bathroom because you can't lock the door. Um, he would barge in that bathroom, peek at you while you were in the shower, um, you weren't allowed to use the restroom with the door closed. It had to be open. And if you closed it and you locked it, he was breaking down the door and breaking the lock. Um, he made a lot of comments specifically about me, actually more than both my brother and my sister combined about my look. Um, he, I'm not going to name the actress, but there is a specific actress. He would compare me to a specific body part on that actress, actually. And he would sing a song about it. And then in the Next breath, he would say that he wanted to sleep with that actress. Um, so how my therapist described it is it's incredibly insidious because a lot of victims of covert incest can feel like they were overtly abused, but they were not necessarily overtly abused. So there's a lot of these same emotions that go about with the overt abuse, but there wasn't necessarily overt abuse. Although I do know a lot of people who had both instances. Um to my knowledge, there was no overt abuse. And if there was, I blocked it out. And I personally don't have any interest in finding it, at least at this current moment. Um, but I don't think so. And working with my therapist, she agrees. But you just never know. Our brains are a very complex thing. Um, but the covert incest was a huge thing. And once I figured out what that was, it made a lot of sense as to why a lot of my childhood felt very icky. I always felt very icky around my dad. He would whisper in your ear for no reason. And like his lips would linger on your neck, um, things of that nature. And it was just very uncomfortable. He would feel very uncomfortable. He kind of always felt like he was watching you because he was. And you just always felt like he was like, you never say this word, ogling, ogling. <laughs> um, he was always doing that to us, especially my sister and I. He was always looking at us, always making comments, um, you know, Again, comparing me to an actress and saying he wanted to sleep with her is essentially saying you want to sleep with your daughter. It's pretty gross. Um, so everything that he did like that always made me feel disgusting. Even like if I look back at pictures of us as kids and I see, I know this sounds crazy, but I actually saw a picture of him with my niece recently, one of my siblings' kids. And the, his hand placement, she's 
very young. She's a baby. And his hand, play, or a toddler rather, his hand placement was so inappropriate. Like there was no reason for his hand to be there. And I understand that for some people that might not be a thing or that might not be triggering. But all I could think of was, I'm sure that's how it started because there's tons of pictures of us like that with him too. Um, everything with him was like that. It was once you hit like 13 or once you started going through puberty, hyper-focused on all of that stuff. It was very uncomfortable to live in that dynamic. Um, and our mom, you know, if he would bring it up to our mom, she would just say, well, don't, don't anger him. You know how he is. Just let it be. It's not a big deal. He's your dad. He's seen you naked. He changed your diapers, which as a parent now, that gives their child tons that change their kids' papers and gives them tons of privacy and they're only 10. Um, I, I just don't agree with it. And I, I don't understand that mentality that she had. And I know why she did it. She was protecting herself. Um, but she would make a lot of excuses for that kind of behavior, even when we express our uncomfortability with the way in which he treated us and, and looked at us. And she would just say, well, he's your father. And then she actually just plays into it. And I found this comment very interesting. Recently, she made a, like six months ago, she made a comment to me about my our father. Um, he's unsurprisingly not affectionate. And she said, well, your father doesn't hug you girls because he feels like it's inappropriate to hug his adult daughters. I don't understand why any parent would feel that way unless they are doing something or did something that was inappropriate. Um, he hugs his granddaughters, no problem. And that is what it is, but it's just bizarre. Um, and that whole dynamic is bizarre. And I know a lot of people buy it, like hear the term covert incest and they don't quite know what it means or they run into the enmeshment thing. And there's not a lot of literature out there or anything really about this part of the covert incest that we're talking about right now. And I think it's great that we're talking about it because a lot of people I think might hear this and go, oh, that rings a bell. It's a huge issue. I wish more people were familiar with it. Once I figured out what it was and why I always felt like I was assaulted, even though I know I wasn't, it made things much easier to understand and accept because of the insidiousness of the actual abuse that was happening with him with that. Our saving grace, um, again, was him working all the time and his alcoholism. Uh, got very fortunate as horrible as that sounds, uh, with the fact that he wasn't really around that much in the younger years for him to do those things when we were younger. And myself specifically being the lost child, I think I really benefited from those things because I was already forgotten as it was. And then him not really being around uh, made things better. And then, you know, kind of hiding away for the 45 minutes that he was moderately sober. And then, you know, kind of made things better. But when he was home on the weekends, it, forget about it. That was, that was when I really lived in my best friend's house. Um, it was really bad uh, when, he, when he would drink in particular. Um, and I know a lot of people will say that those that are alcoholics do present often as narcissists. But even when he gave it up for a little bit, the behavior didn't change. Um, my mom is still with him and they're still doing their thing. Um, but even to this day, I am still the lost child, <laughs> even in my 30s. Um, all my, my siblings and I are all in their 30s. And even as an adult, married with a kid, house, 
jobs, all those things. My parents will reach out to my oldest sibling and my middle sibling and have great relationships with their kids and their spouses and all that stuff. And my parents didn't give two craps about my family and I. Um, so we're just kind of, I'm just kind of self-forgotten even today in my 30s, um, which isn't, as an adult, a bad thing. <laughs> I, I think it's actually kind of a saving grace. I'm able to live my life with my family and be happy and do my own thing. And I think that's kind of the benefit of being a lost child, if there is one. I think that being a scapegoat must be incredibly hard. I did go through that a little bit with my parents. And what is your relationship like with your siblings? Great question. Um, so my oldest sibling and I are fairly close. Um, she's going through her own reckoning with our parents at this point in time. Um, she's been in therapy for many years and she's starting to see the light. Um, so I am formally diagnosed with complex PTSD and comorbid anxiety. Um, she made a comment to me pretty recently that she thinks she has trauma from our childhood. I couldn't help but laugh <laughs> because, yeah, you do. Um, in a very supportive way. I, that sounds very flippant, but, you know, very supportive, of course. Um, so we're pretty close. We talk a couple times a week. We send each other things online all the time. Um, I'm close with her kids. She's close with my kids. We're, we're pretty close. Um, the middle sibling, we're not very close. I don't think it's necessarily because he was the golden child. I think it's more because our values and our beliefs are just practically different. Like, but the my oldest sibling and I are, are pretty close. Yeah. So you were predominantly a lost child, but there were lots of other things going on, the enmeshment, the covert incest, physical abuse, put downs, expectations of being smart enough, even if there wasn't pressure on you specifically at all times about that because of being a lost child. There was neglect in there too. So what issues were created uh, during this childhood that began to hinder you as an adult? Great question. I am definitely a people pleaser, uh, working really hard on that one. Um, just trying to understand that it's okay to say no, it's okay to set boundaries. Also, a very big thing for me, I know I had kind of mentioned it, I have pretty severe anxiety and really severe insomnia. Pretty hard sometimes to shut my brain off at night because of the anxiety. Um, and with the complex PTSD, obviously that goes hand in hand. Um, definitely making everything like I'm always the problem. It's always my fault. Everything is always because of me. That's a, probably the biggest trauma response or issue that I have from all my childhood and being lost in the shuffle would be that I was always. I always, to this day, still often feel like things are my fault and that I'm the problem. Even if I, because we all make mistakes, we're all human. Even if I am the, the fault of the problem, I probably take it to a much further extreme than I need to. Um, and, oh gosh, over-apologizing. <laughs> over-apologizing. Apologizing for everything. I could so much as slightly graze my elbow against somebody, even like my own spouse. And, and he's super supportive and incredible. And I'll apologize for that. Um, the littlest, even things that aren't my fault, or I will tell, I, it's a famous thing at work when my coworkers was joking with me about it the other day because I said to him, I said, well, just blame it on me. It's fine. I'll take accountability for it. It wasn't my fault. 
the issue wasn't my fault. Um, but I just told them, just blame it on me. No big deal. I'll, I'll take the fall for it. But you're also avoiding conflict at all costs. Yes, at the same time. <laughs> so when you think of the word burden, what happens inside you? I <laughs> uh, definitely used to feel that way. Could have empathized with that thought process a year ago before I went to therapy. Um, I don't often feel that way anymore. Uh, with a really great therapist and a great support group uh, with my spouse and my, I have a couple of incredible, super supportive friends, one of which was also raised by an artist, actually. Um, and then support groups, uh, that's a big part of it too. Um, for your listeners, if you were in, a, I know that you do a support group. Um, and then there's a, quite a few others online. Uh, Reddit has a couple, um, if you like the anonymity part. So that's been incredibly helpful. But the burden thing up until probably about a year ago, I would say that would really hit home and be a, a tough pill to fall because that's often how I felt. Like I just, my existence was just everybody's burden. And I was fortunate enough and I, sometimes I wonder how I got here. <laughs> um, fortunate enough to never have suicide ideation. Very fortunate for that. I am very grateful for that. Um, probably because of the good friends that I did have at the time, but definitely often felt like a burden. And even sometimes today, I still feel that way. And then I remind myself that I bring a lot to the table and that, you know, people are, you know, I'm not all bad. <laughs> I might be a little silly, but I do bring some pretty good things to the table sometimes. And if you had any words of wisdom or advice for people listening, what would it be? Live your life. Do your thing. Focus on yourself because you can make your own family. Um, I know something I had said to you is, and I really firmly say this, that if I didn't have my husband and my stepson, I wouldn't even be in this country. I would just move. I wouldn't tell anybody. Um, do your do your own life. It's like whatever you have to do to get the money to do your thing, or whatever you have to do, you build your own life. I, it's so beautiful. I'm so lucky. I have a great kid, a great husband, the coolest dog on the planet. Like. And it, you can get there, but you, you got to live your life for yourself. Um, it's just easier said than done. And therapy is go to therapy and live your life for yourself, for sure. Well, Portia, I want to thank you for being a guest on our show today and, you know, really discussing being a lost child, but also the covert incest aspect of things. We haven't really gone into that much depth. We have done an episode with uh, Dr. Kenneth Adams, which I will leave in the uh, show notes of this uh, show as well. So people can go back in and listen to that episode because he's the foremost expert in enmeshment in emotional incest within families. So really, a big thank you for being on here and highlighting a couple of things that we don't uh, really touch upon that much. And you did a great job telling your story today, and I can't thank you enough for being here. No, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. 
Well, thank you once again, Portia, for being a guest on our show. It wasn't easy to tell your story today. And just a really big thank you from everyone in our community. And if you want to be a guest on our show like Portia was today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to our Guest Form page. There you can read all of our instructions and either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or fill out our guest form and press the submit button and please do send it in the format that we ask for and also at our website we have our very own support group so if you need support please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com top of the page there's a button that says support group inside you will find that we have zoom meetings every Wednesday night Thursday afternoons and Saturday nights we have forum boards for you to post on to get the validation that you need of your experience and you can help validate other survivors as well it's a great group of people on there and that is at NarcissistApocalypse.com just Click on support group, join our group today. And if you need even more support, please do visit our friends at domesticshelters.org. At domesticshelters.org, you can find articles and resources that help you make sense of what you're going through. They also have every phone number, email address, and web address for shelters. No matter how big or small your town is, they have numbers for your shelters, your agencies, website addresses, and email addresses. I know I've repeated myself twice, but it's important that you know that it is there. So please do visit our friends at domesticshelters.org. And that is it for today's episode. So from myself and Portia, we hope you have a good night.